basically in the last 50 years since the publication of Rothbard's um, formulation of uh, business cycle theory and his analysis of, of the Great Depression, um, there's been a, a really a mounting uh, recognition and respect for mainstream economists who are increasingly challenging this sort of orthodox Friedman-Schwartz explanation of, of the Great Depression. Uh, we see this in, in, a, in a couple of papers, for example, in the Journal of Political Economy, uh, Ohanian and Cole challenged the, the idea that the New Deal had anything to do with getting us out of, out of the Depression. And then later on in the Journal of Economic Theory, another very high-level journal, um, uh, Ohanian alone um, wrote an article called Who or What Caused the Great Depression? And he, took the Rothbard, and he cited Rothbard, he took the Rothbardian view that, in fact, it was rigidity in labor markets that caused it. He explicitly rejected the Friedman-Schwartz view that it was a monetary failure. He said it was a failure of labor markets, not a failure of, 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 uh, of the Fed in this particular case. And then, of course, we know that many um, uh, financial economists, practitioners, commentators have also been using the, uh, the, um, the Rothbardian formulation of Austrian business cycle theory going forward um, in the last decade or more to explain events as they unfolded uh, leading up to the, the bursting of the housing bubble and then the financial meltdown. So um, in the first part of my paper, I, I go through, you know, through, through uh, a number of, of uh, different people I've used Rothbard. In fact, um, uh, Brendan Brown, who's here with us, also um, used uh, uh, Rothbard's um, America's Great Depression in some of his analysis of, of the... Um, of the uh, great Dep uh, of the um, great depression in um, his book the global curse of the federal reserve so um, i found the paradox and that was that some contemporary austrian uh, economists have recently criticized rothbard as a greatly inferior monetary economist to friedman take one example uh, george selgin and i'm not completely being fair to george here but he's ever fair to me so um, because, it, because it was on a blog um, so, you know, a free bank, he's a free banker who has uh, strong Austrian inclinations. Um, he harshly compared Rothbard to Friedman in an online article blog in 2011. And he said, as a monetary economist, Rothbard was mediocre to bad. His version of the Austrian cycle theory was naive, containing about a dozen auxiliary assumptions, all of which are patently false. Milton will always seem to me the bigger man as well as the better monetary economist. So I didn't want to really refute that. I wanted to have some fun with it and, um, I, and, and, and refute it in a, in a sort of a different way. And, and it struck me that you could really test Selgin's assertion. Now, the, the test I proposed to conduct, or that I, I did conduct, um, does not really involve specific quantitative predictions and probably doesn't qualify as uh, an empirical test in the sense in which that term has come to be used in modern economics. Or rather, I compare the theories of Friedman and Rothbard on the basis of predictions implied in the verbal analyses of the current and future state of the U.S. economy made between 2002 and 2006 by Friedman himself on the one hand and the followers of Rothbard on the other hand, the Rothbardians. I mean, Rothbard wasn't alive to make these predictions, but people who pretty closely follow him, including myself, uh, Mark Thornton, and there are others, uh, made predictions about what the pattern of the unfolding of these events would look like. And that's what I did then was uh, to, to talk about pattern predictions. So let me just give you a little bit about pattern predictions. Now, this concept was made famous by uh, 
uh, Friedrich Hayek. Okay. So I went back and I began to look, and, and it turned out that, that it was actually first articulated about 30 years before, before Hayek wrote um, by Lionel Robbins in his brilliant essay on the nature and significance of economic science. Um, he really first formulated the concept, and he actually used the terminology of pattern prediction. Um, let me just give you a few quotes from Robbins, just to give you a flavor of what pattern predictions mean and how I'll use it. Um, quote, if the given situation conforms to a certain pattern, certain other features must also be present, for their presence must be deducible from the pattern originally postulated. The analytical method is simply a way of discovering the necessary consequences of complex collocations of facts. Consequences whose counterpart in reality is not so immediately discernible as a counterpart of the original postulates. Granted the correspondence of its original assumptions and the facts, its conclusions are inevitable and inescapable. It is this inevitability of economic analysis that gives its it's very considerable prognostic value. Those are his words. Robbins went on to point out that while uh, economics cannot predict changes in valuations and technical facts, once the, the pattern of such data has been ascertained, quote, it can, in, uh, it can draw inevitable conclusions as to their implications. And if the data remain unchanged, it can draw inevitable conclusions as to their implications. All right, so I, I repeated myself there. Um, now, Robbins did concede that when there's a very small change in the data, an exogenous change, uh, a, a tariff on one single item in an economy, uh, that can certainly not show up in the later data. That, that can certainly be hidden by other um, exogenous changes that may take place in the interim before the full consequences of the tariff uh, has uh, have unfolded. And he, he said, for example, wages could have fallen, in which case the price of the article that had a tariff placed on it may not actually show up in the data. However, he went on and said something very interesting. He says, there are certain broad changes, usually involving many lines of expenditure or production at once, where a knowledge of implications is a very firm basis for conjecture, conjectures of strong probability. This is particularly the case in the sphere of monetary phenomena. According to Robbins, pattern predictions relating to the later phase of business cycle, based on data revealing that the first phase is already in progress, falls into the category of what he called conjectures of strong probability. Explained Robbins, and I'm quoting him. It becomes more and more clear, for purely analytical reasons, that once the signs of a major boom in trade have made their appearance, the coming of slump and depression is almost certain. So now he's saying that this is not a Ceteris Paribus prediction. I mean, this is a prediction that you will see turn up in the data. Although when it will come and how long it will last are not matters which are predictable, since they, are, they depend on human volitions appearing after the indications and questions have appeared. Mises um, uh, uh, sharpened Robin's formulation of the concept of pattern prediction. According to Mises, economics provides the ins indispensable means of ascertaining whether government interventions of various types have succeeded in achieving the goals they were aiming at. That is, whether the predictions of the supporters of the interventions have come to pass. For the aims of the interventionists are, and, you know, surprised me in thinking this through, are in, invariably articulated as a specific pattern of economic activity that will diverge from that which the unhampered market would bring about. All interventionist me measures are therefore based on implicit pattern predictions, okay? 
Uh, now, Mises doesn't say that in, in those words. Those are my words. But he, 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 he has an insight into that. So um, in tracing out the effects of any actual government intervention, therefore, the deductive economist is, in effect, enunciating a prediction of an alternative pattern of economic interactions that will inevitably emerge once the interventionist policy has been implemented. Um, and Mises goes on to say that um, these can, because of human valuations and volitions, these can only be qualitative, not quantitative. So he forcefully states the claim for the predictive value of economic science. Quote, economics can predict the effects to be expected from resorting to definite measures of economic policies. It can answer the question of whether a definite policy is able to attain the ends aimed at, and if the answer is in the negative, what its real effects will be. But of course, this prediction can only be qualitative. It cannot be quantitative because there are no constant relations between the factors and the effects concerned. The practical value of economics is to be seen in this neatly circumscribed power of predicting the outcome of definite measures. Mises is saying this is not a cerebus paribus prediction. This is a prediction that you will see uh, uh, configured in the data. In fact, Mises' goal is a little bit further than that, and he says, uh, um, or, or uh, I'm paraphrasing him, for, for, for Mises then, pattern predictions refer to qualitative configuration of objective economic data which could not be detected without prior economic analysis, and indeed whose very conception is dependent on economic theory. Let me give you an example. An increase in the federal minimum wage to $9, which is now being bandied about, uh, per hour, from the current $7.25 per hour, which we assume to be above the equilibrium wage, will lead to an increased surplus of unskilled labor reflected in greater unemployment or a decrease in its non-wage benefits, or both. This pattern prediction is theory-dependent in the sense that the very phenomenon of an excess supply of labor specified by the theory um, uh, could not be even apprehended without it, okay, um, is specified by the theory and could not even be apprehended without it, let alone detected in the complex objective data. So the very prediction of the pattern, you can't even know what the pattern would be like without prior analysis, okay? So the empirical stuff comes afterwards. Okay, let's get to Friedman. Um, Friedman um, treated the relationship between money and, and prices as aggregative and, and mechanical. He focused narrowly on the effect that a change in total quantity of money would have uh, on, on a unitary va variable that he called the price level, which can be measured in uh, a myriad of ways, which we won't get into. But this yields a, a definition of inflation that refers exclusively to the general movements of prices and completely ignores other more important effects of changes in the money supply. These effects include artificially depressed interest rates, a distorted structure of relative prices, the falsification of entrepreneurs' profit and wealth calculations, all of which lead to asset bubbles, malinvestments, overconsumption, and financial crises. So because of, of, of Friedman's defective analytical economics, his pattern predictions are going to be incorrect. So what I did was go back to 2002 and found articles by, written by Milton Friedman, and he was still very lucid at that time, um, in every year from 2002 to 2006, and even one that was um, published posthumously uh, the day after he passed away. And he completely misses the whole pattern of the bubble 
and, and, and the housing bubble, uh, the, the run-up in, in, in financial prices, and so on. He thinks the economy is just doing swell. Now, I, I, in my paper, you, you know, I have, uh, as I said, uh, one or two articles in which he makes these claims for each year. But let me skip, in the interest of time, to a remarkable interview that he gave to Charlie Rose on public television in December of 2005. And let me quote from that. Um, covered a, ro- a broad range of topics, uh, including the performance of the Fed under Alan Greenspan. Friedman gave no indication, even at this late date, that he had a clue that monetary policy had stimulated a dangerous housing bubble or that a bubble even existed. By this time, the money supply had, had expanded by $2 trillion or about $1 billion per day in terms of the, the uh, MZM, which is a, an official Fed figure, which I kind of prefer I, um, to M2, or $750 million per day in terms of, M, uh, of, of M2. Okay, and that was between 2001 and 2005. Um, in an interview, in the, in the interview, Friedman effusively praised Alan Greenspan and gave his approval to the Fed's recent monetary policy. The interview is worth quoting at length because it demonstrates how very bad monetary theory how bad analysis gives rise to wildly inaccurate interpretations of the economy's performance. Not just interpretations, but pattern predictions. Note how Friedman is almost monomaniacal in his focus on price stability, in what I'm about to, to read, and how this drives his entire appraisal of the state of the U.S. economy. Okay, so now I'm going to quote Milton Friedman. The United States is at the peak of its performance in its history, there has never been a time in the United States when we have had this, this, the state of prosperity, its level and its spread, that we have had in the last 10 or 15 years. There has never been a 15-year period in which there has been so little fluctuation in prices and inflation. Inflation has stayed around 2 or 3% or less for the last 15 years. I mean, this is it. That's all he's looking at. It's unprecedented. I certainly do give credit to Alan Greenspan for that. I think monetary policy is primarily responsible for it. Charlie Rose. You think that Alan Greenspan was the greatest Federal Reserve chairman ever? Um, And I don't know if that was the inflection, but I like to make it. Um, (laughs) uh, Milton Friedman. There has been no chairman since the founding of the Fed who has anything like as good an outcome. Because he took the the containing of inflation as the chief task of the Fed. Um, Let me put it this way. In the first 75 years of its existence, the Fed, on the average, was a major negative feature in the economy. We never would have had the Great Depression if there hadn't been a Fed. Since then, since 1982 or 1983, the Fed has been a beneficiary, and he means to say benefactor there, uh, for the economy. Um, So that I had never, or I had very seldom, anything good to say about the Fed before the 1980s. But since Alan Greenspan took over, I have very little but good to say. And by the way, in some of the earlier articles that I looked at in, uh, between 2004 and 2000, uh, 2002 and 2005, um, uh, Friedman goes on, uh, makes uh, comments that we don't even need his quantity rule anymore. He actually abandons, he forsakes his quantity rule because the Fed has now, under Alan Greenspan, figured out the correct thermostat by which to adjust changes in velocity uh, or to adjust the money supply to changes in velocity. Um, so he, conti- so he uh, let me continue it with the interview. Um, uh, 
I think his successor is a, va- a very able man, and he, like Greenspan, takes keeping stable prices as the major function of the Fed. And I have a good deal of confidence that he will continue in Alan Greenspan's path. You can make a good argument that the Fed overdid easing money a little, um, and that must be a reference to when they pushed rates down to, to, um, to 1% or 2%, um, uh, 1%. Um, this is, uh, that they kept the Fed funds rate at 1% or 2% a little too long, and you know that's, that it's a natural tendency that you overdo things. You almost never go right along on a stable path like this, and he ma- I, I was watching, he makes his hand go straight up. Um, he says, you know, waves a little bit. He says, you go up, you go too far, and it's a little hard to calibrate, but that was Greenspan's genius. He could calibrate everything. He was willing to abandon the quantity rule for the Greenspan rule, okay? Um, posthumously, uh, the day after he died, November 17th, 2006, he, uh, an article that he had written came out in the Wall Street Journal, Why Money Matters. In this, Friedman compared three episodes of monetary policy, which he called, using positivist jargon, um, a major natural experiment. And the natural experiment was to compare the United States economy, the 1920s, the Japanese economy, 1990s, and then the U.S. economy um, in um, the 1990s also, okay, when we had the tech bubble. So what he says is, the conclusion that Friedman drew from this natural experiment was that the highly expansionary monetary policy that the Fed pursued after the 1990s boom caused the U.S. recession of 2001 to be uh, of 2000 2001 to be very mild and allowed the U.S. economy to avoid a 1930s style Great Depression or 1990s style Japanese Great Recession. Now, this article vividly illustrates the reason for Friedman's stunning failure to recognize the housing and stock market bubbles that were very clearly evident and peaking by 2006. For Friedman did not give the slightest indication that he viewed the rapid growth in the money supply as a major factor driving the boom phases of the three episodes. Rather, he concluded, and I quote, monetary policy played a role in these three earlier booms, but only a supporting role. Technological change appears to be a major player. So it was technology. Um, this conclusion perfectly exemplifies the mindset of price stabilizers like Friedman and his mentor Fisher, who he called the greatest American economist who ever lived. Um, since there was very little change in some arbitrarily selected price index in the U.S. in the 1920s and 1990s, and in Japan in the 1980s, well then, monetary policy could not have been the cause of the boom. Uh, in the last section, so, so Friedman made no, his, his, his predictions of how the economy would continue under Greenspan, his pattern prediction was you know, devastatingly, uh, you know, blatantly, um, abysmally bad, okay, wrong. Um, and then in the last section of my paper, I um, rehearse some of the predictions that were made by the Rothbardians, um, which Mark has written an article on. I sort of went over it. And I had also discovered that um, in, in 2004, in an article, I had um, uh, sort of talked about the housing bubble and predicted that it would blow up, okay, and I'm just a guy who teaches at Pace University. I mean, I'm, I'm not Milton Friedman. So um, it, it's, it's not me. It's, it's, just, it's the good analytical economics that Austrian economics is that I think permits us to, to, to make these, these non-quantitative um, uh, pattern predictions that Robbins and Mises talk about. And also, Rockwood has a long section, which I quote in my paper, on pattern predictions. He does not use the term, though. So I'll stop here and take any questions. Thank you. Thank you.